Well, thank you very much, dear friends. I am really grateful to Professor Macmillan, to Martin Davidson, and to my friend Les Betel for, for the invitation to speak about the challenges facing human rights in the global year at the annual Sergio Vieira de Mello lecture. Sergio's entire life was dedicated to the ideals of human rights and humanitarian work. For him, freedom and human dignity were the foundations of peace and justice. Sergio was courageous and compassionate, bold but also pragmatic, often at the frontiers or at the front lines, but always taking the side of the weak, the vulnerable, the powerless. Uncompromising in his principles, but with a gift for listening and learning from those he worked with. And he had the capacity to combine a maximum flexibility in dealing with the complexities of real life situations with a strong commitment to basic values. This allowed him to stand inequivocally on the side of the victims while taking to all the parties involved. Perhaps this is a close, sorry, this is as close as one can get to being a practitioner of what I could call the art of politics, as the title of my last book. This combination of vision and pragmatism, flexibility in the means, and consistency on the goals. From Cambodia to Bosnia, Rwanda to Kosovo, East Timor to Iraq, Sergio came to grips with some of the most dreadful conflicts of the last decades. By the way, I have been to Timor when Sergio was there. Sergio was the United Nations representative. It was really something uh, very impressive to see this man, as it been said by Leslie, a, a handsome, a beautiful man, and totally devoted to his duties uh, there, and talking to everyone in Timor. At that time, Timor was still very poor, and the situation was unstable. Uh, I was yet president, so it was impossible to receive me uh, in Timor because without any uh, hotel or the thing to, to stay there. So uh, in order to offer me a, a lunch, we had to move to a, to a, a boat, you see? It was there for a long time because it was so scarce of, of means, the situation in, in Timor. It is really something very impressive to see how Sergio was moving ahead. I went to see different places in Timor. I went to see schools in Timor. I went to see priests in Timor, you see? And also the effort had been made to, to try to, well, to, to teach Portuguese to people in Timor, because they were not able to speak Portuguese correctly. They just have to, to, to adapt some, some you know, uh, grammar in order to, to ease the, the, the process, the process of, of, uh, of educating Timor people into, into Portuguese. And uh, to me it was wonderful, because uh, my wife was at the time very active in trying to, 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 uh, well, to, to, to face the problem of illiteracy in Brazil. And, and she creates a, an organization named so, uh, uh, Community Solidarity, 
And this organization was there in Timor, trying to also to, to, to help what has been done in, in Timor. And Sergio was all time there. So to me, it's really not, not just something that I'm saying because I have to, to, to give you a lecture, but something that I feel profoundly because I saw the, how Sergio was capable to motivate people and to take the leadership in very difficult situations. So let me say to you that, uh, uh, as I said, from Cambodia to Bodja, Rwanda, Kosovo, East Timor, Sergio came to the grip with some of the most dreadful conflict of the last decades. Time and again, he was confronted with life and death, questions for which there were no easy answers. How to balance the obligation to protect the victims with the denunciations of human rights violations? What kinds of compromise are or are not acceptable to minimize human suffering? At what point pragmatism becomes complacency with the unacceptable? When is dialogue no longer an option and the aggressor has to be engaged despite the risk that in the short term the level of violence may increase? How to define this moment in which, faced with massive human rights abuse and crimes against humanity, it is legitimate to use force in the pursuit of peace? Serve felt that the way forward was always to invent on the spot the most appropriate set of ground rules. He urged the international community to acknowledge that flagrant and systematic violations of human rights are frequently the main cause of global insecurity. He was also convinced that top-down approaches are bound to fail. Outsiders can help. Many technical expertise, political pressure are important tools but no lasting outcome can be attained without the empowerment of local leaders and the building of local capacities. Human rights as democracy are a human invention. It is not a given, but a construction rooted in the history and culture of each society. They are never defined once and for all as an expression of human needs and as a result of human action their framing is a work in progress, an unfinished journey. New questions and demands arise out of an ever-involving political and social landscape. That is why I believe that addressing some of the key challenges to human rights in today's world is a fitful way to pay tribute to the ideals that inspired Sergio Villarimelo's life. I will focus on five critical challenges. The first one, and perhaps the most complex of all, is the tension between universal human rights and respect for cultural and religious diversity. Human rights are universal, interrelated, and indivisible, but the world is more than ever multipolar and multicultural. Hence the paradox we are confronted, hence the paradox we are confronted with. How to ensure that, that respect for diversity does not lead to the uncritical acceptance of religious fundamentalism. How far the tolerance of intolerance can go without negating itself. What are the precious core values that must be safeguarded in any situation? It is true there is no straight answer, 
to these questions. But it is also true that the international community, through dialogue and debate, has been forging a minimum set of standards. I think we can safely say at this point that this emerging consensus about what is clearly unacceptable encompasses, first, crimes against humanity like ethnic cleansing or the use of famine as a weapon of war. Second, atrocities like the systematic use of torture against political opponents. Third, the indiscriminate violence against the civilian population in situations of armed conflicts. The point I would like to stress is that the global public opinion today plays a critical role in this debate. It is no longer up only to states and international organizations to set the standards. The voice influencing the process of deliberation are many and diverse. This leads me to the second challenge facing human rights in the global era. Today, both state and non-state actors are increasingly responsible for the violation and the promotion of human rights. This is a challenge and an opportunity for the cause of human rights. A challenge because it is much more difficult for the international community to protect the victims of atrocities perpetrated by loosely organized networks such as Al-Qaeda. This problem is compounded by the proliferation of failed states incapable or unwilling to control the actions not only of terrorist organizations but also to curb the growing power of global organized crime. In today's Latin America, for example, drug-related crime is no longer a problem for police and courts. It is a direct challenge to governments and societies. The rising power of the drug mafias and cartels is destroying not only the lives of our young people, they are also tearing apart the social fabric and undermining through violence and corruption the most basic institutions of democracy. As I say to you, that I belong to a, uh, a group of people in Latin America who decided to organize a commission on drugs. Uh, three former presidents of Latin America, with other uh, novelists, social scientists, uh, practitioners, we decided to organize a, a, a commission on drugs. And why? Because of what I have said just now. Drug is undermining democracy. It's not just a, a, a problem of, of drug by itself and, and police. It's also a political problem. If you look across the region, it's not just Colombia. Colombia is famous, but not just Colombia. In Rio, you have a very similar situation. If you go to Mexico, it's maybe still worse. It's a kind of situation of despair when the government takes the decision to fight the drug trafficking. The, the, the government is losing the battle because the cartels are so well organized and so powerful and they have penetrated so profoundly in, the, in government, but mainly in the local communities and, and, and provinces, that it's extremely difficult to deal with, 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 with this kind of, of criminals. On top of that, the crime has been also affected by the new era of globalization. In our days, not just Al-Qaeda, is organized through new instruments and using, using internet and small organizations which can split and, and regain 
capacity to, to, to survive again and again and again because there are no more hierarchies as in the past as mafia in Italy had a boss. No, now it's different. It's no more necessary to have a, a hierarchy and a boss. We can, you know, criminal people can organize very, very easily by themselves. But using the same instrument that we are using now, that is to say, the, 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 the web, the internet, and you organize here and there. So it's still difficult to, 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 to lead with, with, with drug trafficking, not just in Latin America, across the world. Anyhow, I think that because of, the, of that, the growing role of non-state actors is also an opportunity insofar as so many more voices are being heard in the defense of human rights. They range from organizations with great legitimacy, such as um, uh, Amnesty, Amnesty International, to the rising role played by a wide variety of new actors, spiritual and civic, and civic leaders, citizen groups, and public opinion. Forty years ago, reports denouncing torture against political prisoners in Brazil had been physically carried by messengers to Europe, to Europe and to the United States, often at considerable risk. One of the most effective actions promoted by Amnesty International was the sending by ordinary people of freedom letters to authorities responsible for the mistreatment of political prisoners. Information today is a common pub public good, a click in the internet, and it will flow all over the web. Power is shifting from states to societies and from vertical organization to flexible networks. Informed and empowered individuals also participate in this great free-flowing conversation about what, what is admissible and what is not. The, th the third challenge I wish to address is the threat posed to the world's poor by the global economic crisis that is upon us. With this concept of development as an expansion of freedom, Amartya Sen called our attention to the interconnection between political freedom, economic empowerment, social opportunities, transparency, and security. This vision contributed to the growing perception of extreme poverty and expanding global asymmetries as a violation of basic human rights. This question gains a new urgency in face of the growing impact of the current financial meltdown. It is essential to prevent the corrosion of the great progress achieved in the last decade in terms of getting millions out of poverty. In an article published two weeks ago or three weeks ago in the Financial Times, Kofi Annan, Michel Condessou, and Robert Rubin warned against the threat of a response to the crisis that does take not account the needs of the world's poor or worse, that results in more poverty, hunger, disease, and illiteracy. Indeed, what a, a tremendous setback for the cause of human rights is poor people in poor countries were to pay the price for a crisis that they had no role in creating. Here again, we are confronted with risk and opportunity. Market fundamentalism has self-destructed in the same sudden and irrevocable way that the Soviet Union melted in the air. The reckless pursuit of profit at any cost has brought to uh, that end. It is time to ask ourselves 
what are the real foundations of our societies? What is quality of life and what are the needs and values that should orient our collective behavior? Unusual circumstances tend to create rare opportunities. Conditions are ripe for the emergence of a new global contract driven by a different mindset with freedom, dignity, and human rights at its core. Everyone knows what's going to happen with, uh, as a consequence of the financial crisis that we are facing now. We are just beginning. You have to see what will happen. I have been two days or two days ago in New York. The election day was there. And I had the opportunity to have a, 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 a conversation, a, a dialogue, with several people involved in the financial uh, area in the United States. They don't know what to do. They don't know what will happen. I'm not speaking of anyone. I don't want to, to give names to you. But anyhow, very important and responsible people. There's just no one thing. The situation is bad. Wow. And the government, we need governmental support. So it's, it's wonderful to, to see how these people have been so enthusiastic with free markets. I'm not against, but then how the fundamentalists in favor of free markets produce this kind of you know, situation of despair. They don't know what to do. And I, I doubt if anyone in government will be capable now to say what to do. Probably we'll have to, 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 to try several ways to solve the situation. But at the end, we have to look people, because unemployment is coming, because poverty certainly will increase across the world. And those who have not to do with the, the financial crisis will pay a high price because of unemployment, because of the, the cost of, uh, of, of commodities, because of, of, of the lack of, of, of different uh, opportunities to solve the situation. And this is also a problem that cannot be solved just by looking after the markets, you have to look at after society, what I said, and you have to involve more people in, in, into the debate about what kind of, of future you went for. Uh, let me use a, a strong word for mankind, not for each one of our countries, for mankind, because because of globalization. Now again, it's possible to speak about mankind in a different way. When I remember what has been said by Marx, that you cannot use the the concept of mankind, because what is uh, is true is social classes, and you, uh, mankind could be a, a kind of fake analysis of the real situation. Now again, I think it's necessary to review this, that position because mankind exists because it has been you know, put together by, by, by not just by market, but also by the communication process to have this enormous global uh, interplay. So we have to look after not just one nation, but we have to look uh, all nations together. This is require an enormous effort, to some extent, to, to rebuild the, 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 the world order. Probably we have to start by trying to have new sense of power. But then it will be necessary not just to have sense of power, not necessary to have more discussion, more meetings. This is necessary, but it's not enough. Probably we have to, 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 to do an effort to create new institutions or to invigorate the, the already existing institutions with a democratic spirit, uh, enlarging the possibility for different countries and people to have a say in, in, into the decision-making process because we cannot uh, just uh, accept what is good. Now the, the case that only one sense of power is taking decision, that is to say, the government of the United States. 
if you look what happened in very recent days, weeks and days, the fact is the American Treasury became a kind of central bank of central banks. What has been the, uh, uh, Lord Keynes' dream uh, was prevented to, to, to realize the dream because the American uh, you know, uh, Treasury Secretary at the time opposed to, to, to Keynes' ideas that is to say, to create a real central bank of central bank, suddenly you are seeing the Federal Reserve working as if the Federal Reserve would be the central bank of central banks. I understand in current days, but at long term, this is not acceptable because it, the means of that is, is that from, from, from now on, the Americans will have the only, one, the only say. This is not acceptable. So this, uh, I'm trying to, to raise to you the words that even the financial crisis has to be faced from the perspective of mankind, so for the protection of rights. Who have the power? You have to, to enlarge the, you know, the empowerment process in order to, to avoid the, uh, the additional asymmetries as a consequence of the financial crisis. I know that's very difficult, but anyhow, like the King's tribe, I think someone has to try now nowadays and to imagine a better world. And this is not just for one person. This is also a collective, you know, uh, endeavor. Otherwise, well, otherwise, those who are already commanding the, the, the global scene will continue to command. Anyhow, let me move to the other two challenges I want to mention, and, and those are more specific. One is linked to the questions of the transitional justice affecting societies where the rule of law was restored after long periods of authoritarianism. The other has to do with the threats to civil liberties raised by the war on terror. Let me deal first with the question that has deeply affected some of the most advanced democracies since the events of 9-11. Reflecting on the growing restrictions imposed on the rule of law in the name of security needs, Sergio Vieira de Mello sounded the alarm. He said, we live in fearful times, and fear is a bad advisor. Who would have imagined 10 years ago that the world was about to witness a resurgence in the use of torture as a state policy? In the end, the steady erosion of basic civil rights in the name of the war on terror is one of the saddest developments in the field of human rights. In the, the discussion, discussion in countries with the legal tradition of the United States and the United Kingdom about the exact definition of torture <coughs> is a telling example of how fast human progress can be stopped and reversed. In my view, democracy will not lose war against global terrorism unless it is sacrificed in the process its most precious and constituent values. This question is a powerful reminder of how fragile are the conquests in the field of human rights and how exposed is any country in time of crisis to authoritarian relapses. Hopefully, one of the first acts of Barack Obama as President of the United States will be to close down Guantanamo and threat torture as a, as a crime against humanity. Because indulgence with a torture that has been seen, uh, seen in the United States in recent, recent years is, not, is unacceptable. The, only, the, the fact that they are discussing about 
the legitimacy of torture is it, it, it's enough, it's too much. It's unacceptable. And this has been done. And, 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 and one uh, minister, Secretary of Justice, wrote a, a paper defending in which circumstances it's possible to use torture. And this paper has been approved by the government. So this is unacceptable. We have to, uh, to react. And I hope, I sincerely hope, that Obama will have the, uh, the energy, the capacity, the energy to, be a, uh, to take a, a courageous uh, act and to close down Guantanamo as a, as a signal that this one hero, a new hero, is beginning. I think that some symbolic you know, moments have to be taken very in, in depth if you want to rebuild the, the basis for a better society. My last point has to do with the conflicting demands between peace and justice, truth and reconciliation in transitions from authoritarian to democratic rule. In recent history, we have some examples of the usually sudden collapse of authoritarian regimes, usually in the aftermath of failed military adventures. This has been the case of Portugal, Greece, and Argentina. In most cases, however, the transition to democracy was a long process driven by many factors combining pressure from civil society and international community with power fatigue and economic hardship. <clears throat> In both situations, the question of how to deal with past atrocities has been a, a thorny issue for newly restored democracies. Different countries have chosen different paths. Some who had opted for a policy of retribution were unwillingly forced to make concessions to safeguard the fra their fra fragile democracy. Others who had tried to negate the wounds of the past were incapable to heal their societies. Gradually, the notion of truth as a precondition for peace and reconciliation has emerged as an alternative to either outright impunity or the punishment of the many guilty of human rights abuse. Some measures of reparation for the victims is an indispensable component of the healing process. This requires, at the very least, that the state takes the lead in conducting a full investigation and sheds light on violations committed by its agents. This is also the best way to prevent the repetition of these atrocities. I must avoid to you, being former head of state, it's not easy. It is extremely difficult because the head of states, even when take the decision to do something in that matter, will have the immediate reaction of those who have been involved in, 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 in the past with, with, with violation of, of human rights. And very often, they would negate the existence of documents to, to prove anything. I, if you allow me, in my, my own experience, once uh, some I remember it was um, in, in Bahia, Brazilian province, the local federal police had in, in, in its office, in its office, some documents about how one former guerrilla leader was killed, and with ph photographs, so on, so on and so forth, and, and, and this man's uh, wife too. So I called. Uh, oh. Suppose responsible, not for the, the, the act, but in the uh, institutional 
bailing because you know, I called the ministers in, uh, which had to, to respond to me, what, what's that? And sincerely, one of the ministers said, President, probably there are documents, but I don't have access to the documents because there are no more within our archives. Probably from time to time some documents will appear, but they are in the hands of those who have been involved in the practice of, of, of the atrocities. No more in official archives. So the human rights movement is asking for, let's open the archives. Now the archives are open, but empty. There are no documents, nothing to do. The same applies to the, the victims of a guerrilla war. Where are the bodies? Probably there are people, some people know, but the state as such has no registers at all. So it's a very embarrassing situation. Because even when, it, when the, the, the political decision has been made, we don't have the instruments, you know, uh, to, to, to substantiate denunciations, so on and so forth. Anyhow, something has to be done. In our case, uh, once in time I decided to, well, to ask for power to the Brazilian society. Being myself put in exile by the military and have been put in prison by the military, but I said, oh, I, I, I ask for pardon. Not in my name, but the name of the Brazilian state. And I tried to, to make a, a, a kind of reconciliation. So I, I, I signed a, a bill uh, to, well, proposing some reparations for victims. And I asked, uh, well, the, the wife of one of the, the guys who had been killed in torture. By the way, it was a friend of mine, and she was also my friend. They came to my office, she came to my office, and the military chief of staff, the general, was there, and I signed the decree. Both have been very uh, emotional with the situation. The other day, every newspaper reproduced the photograph with the general and the lady, so on and so forth, and we start the process of reparation. This process is going on and on, and it still continues. But anyhow, this is maybe not enough, because uh, those who, have, who are family victims want more. Yeah, they want to, to know where the bodies are. Bodies are. It is, you know, it's extremely difficult. Even when the, the, the political power, at least president, or some ministers, are willing to, 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 to give a, a more correct answer. Another case that you see in Argentina is still more dramatic because the number of, of victims is, is counted by thousands, not by hundreds, as in Brazil uh, or, or in Chile. Huh? Uh, and in Argentina, the, the process is still much more difficult. To, the reconciliation is still very difficult. In other situations, like, like in South Africa, uh, the enormous you know, symbolic action by Mandela and Tutu, the Bishop Tutu, to create an instrument for reconciliation have worked to some extent. Anyhow, I think it's important and necessary to create instruments to allow a kind of, of reconciliation in order to, as I said, to prevent the repetition of the atrocities. And in any case, you cannot deny that the atrocities existed and there are some responsibles. Even if they are not, not in jail, if when we have, as we have in Brazil, an amnesty law, you cannot deny the fact that they were there, and they were responsible for atrocities. The process of reconciliation is further enhanced when perpetrators or members of warring factions acknowledge their deeds and ask for some kind of forgiveness from their victims. Thus, the power of the old biblical saying, truth shall set 
loop free was put to the test and proved more accurate than ever. I think it's time to conclude. The common thread running through this inventory of challenges is that for each and every issue, there is not an easy, simple, or definitive answer to be found. <coughs> Argument and debate are the means to build a consensus. What is new and promising, let me say again, is enlargement of the act of participating in the process of deliberation. The best safeguard for human rights is the strengthening of a global culture of participation and responsibility. This belief was the foundation of Sergio Vieira de Mello's life. Elie Wiesel once asked whether, as a survivor of Auschwitz, he spoke for those who had died in the concentration camps. His answer was, nobody speaks for the dead. They speak by, they speak by themselves. The question is, are we capable of listening? In this spirit, let us be inspired by Sergio's ultimate sacrifice and that of the brave men and women falling in the attack against the United Nations compound in Baghdad. Thank you very much.